Hi, everybody. I'm Liz Nord, and you're listening to the No Film School podcast. The British Film Institute did a study a few years ago that determined that under 3% of directors who've directed one feature film have gone on to direct two or more. The odds are not very good. Completing a second feature is a bear for so many reasons, but my guests today have successfully made that leap. Gillian Robespierre and Elizabeth Holm collaborated on Obvious Child, which premiered at Sundance 2014, where Holm won the Red Crown Producers Award, and went on to critical and audience acclaim and theatrical release. They joined efforts again for Landline, which premiered at Sundance 2017, where it was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize, and the movie opened in theaters last Friday. Both film star comedian Jenny Slate. In Obvious Child, she's dealing with an unplanned pregnancy and schedules a Valentine's Day abortion. And in Landline, she and her younger sister, played by Abby Quinn, are attempting to uncover the truth behind their father's affair. Landline also features Jay Duplass as Slate's boyfriend, veteran actor John Turturro as her philandering dad, and a magnificent Edie Falco as her jilted mom. I think you'll enjoy our conversation about how they overcame the hurdles of making a second feature, writing authentic dialogue and getting equally authentic performances out of your actors, and the all-important question of whether there's anything more human than peeing in the shower. So welcome to the No Film School podcast. Thank you Thank for you. having us. I would love to start with you just introducing yourselves. Hi, I'm Gillian Robespierre, co-writer and director of Landline. And I'm Elizabeth Holm, co-writer and producer of Landline. I'm so excited that you're here. Thanks. I think my stomach is here, too. Did you hear that? I heard that. Yeah. <laughs> we like to eat at No Film School. Cool. Cool, That's cool, a thing. Cool. Yeah. So you guys know what No Film School is about. It's, you know, we are speaking to other filmmakers. And a lot of times we're asking people advice about making your first film. But in your case, you've done the sort of gigantic feat of creating a second feature and getting it out into the world. And I was looking up some st statistics about this and was shocked at how uncommon that is. Like, I'm going to look, the BFI did a study a few years ago that determined that under 3% of directors who have directed one feature have gone on to, to direct two or more. Wow. So I don't know exactly what demographic that applies to, but you get the idea. So first of all, why do you think it's so hard to get the second one made after you've done the huge hurdle of getting the first one made? It's probably a combination of things. I think we, as humans, put a lot of pressure on ourselves. Um, so if your first movie does well, there's the pressure of trying to, you know, um, make a second one that does does just as well. I think there's, if your movie doesn't do as well as you expected it to or other people, then you kind of are hard on yourself and tend to, you know, quit. Um, I think there's so many reasons why filmmaking is hard. Uh, I think uh, one of them is that it's a very expensive endeavor and you have to not only get a ton of money behind you, a crew of at least, you know, I mean, I've made movies with two people and I've made movies with 75 people. So um, it's it can be made on a very shoestring budget. You don't need so much money anymore, but um, you, you do need a lot of, of collaborators to help. So I think sometimes when it's daunting, and it is for sure a marathon. Yeah, I think um, certainly <laughs> maybe for some people after the first one you know too much, <laughs> and uh, 
your first feature, there there is a certain bliss and ignorance of just learning as you go and maybe doing things the way you want to do them as opposed to the way they're supposed to be done because you don't know any better. And that's often the thing that helps you get through it. Um, I think on your second movie, you have a track record of whatever your first movie was, which, of course, when you're trying to make your first movie, you have no track record. And that's the problem. Um, but depending on how well that first movie did, probably for financiers and other folks, they're all they're looking at is your last film. Um, and, you know, I think we had the really good fortune of having a first movie that, for the most part, like did pretty well out there and, um, you know, changed our lives and, and afforded us the opportunity to try again. Um, but I yeah, I think making movies is uh like everything really really hard and a marathon like Gillian said and I also think some folks um aren't don't necessarily want to be career storytellers they have a story that they want to tell and they tell it extremely well and that's part of you know their journey as a creative human but maybe not something they want to be doing over and over again every three years well, so the film you refer to was Obvious Child that you both worked together on, and now Landline is out there. So how do you think you overcame some of those hurdles that we just discussed? Oh, <laughs> I don't know if we did. Um, I think we were really lucky to have each other. Um, I think our partnership has given us both a lot of confidence and strength and also, Gillian's just a badass superhero and can, like, lift cars off of babies and stuff. So I had no doubt that she would make another movie. Um, well, that's very kind, but I've never lifted a car in my life. I was going to say <laughs> Pixar didn't you happen. You lift babies, though. You've done that. Yeah. No, I'm, I, uh, we, Liz and I shot a pilot before we shot Landline, and I was six months pregnant. And she saw me, like, lift a lot of food from Crafty into my mouth. Um <laughs> And take a lot of pee breaks. But, um, yeah, it's definitely having each other. Uh, it's a rough business. It's good to collaborate with smart, talented people. And and we wrote you know, a role in our new movie, Landline, for Jenny. So bringing somebody that you have a shorthand with on board and a successful first movie with on board is always helpful. Um, creating a family um, with the cinematographer and the editors and, um, you know, making making it as familial as possible. And all of those um, elements give you strength to continue and um, and make it exciting. And also um, opening up the room to new collaborators. We worked with amazing new people like uh, Kelly McGeehy was our production designer. Uh, Liz Vastola did our costumes. And I think that um, working with people you know and love and also meeting new people along the way keeps it really exciting and propels you to to move forward. You know, with Obvious Child, what helped me through the years was just getting these little grants along the way, these little institutional pushes, not just financially, but it made me feel like, um, you know, people out there other than, uh, you know, my friends who read the script were excited to see this movie and this project come come to life. Um and that can be hard because I was working on the short to the feature for many years, and it, it wasn't an overnight process. It took a long time, and um, I think that I might be a little sick in the head, um, but also it's 
drive and um, a little ambition and a lot of luck and great partners. Well, you mentioned another Liz, and we've got, of course, Liz home here in the room, so I, I appreciate the Liz-heavy production being a Liz <laughs> myself. Um, that's obviously the a most important takeaway. The fir- my first uh, like big short film was named Liz. It's meant to be. Yeah, I love the name. <laughs> um, so you talked about a little bit about your own collaboration, and obviously every filmmaking process is a huge multi-person collaboration, but yours has lasted, so now it sounds like Obvious Child, Landline, and in between a series that will be coming out in the future, or? Oh, no. <laughs> we uh, we made a pilot um, in between making Obvious Child and Landline, and uh, we like to say they liked it so much they asked us to make another one. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll see what happens. It was a really positive experience for us, also with Jenny. Um, and, you know, we hope to make more TV in the future, but we were honestly toggling between that and the movie and then needed to get back to the movie. And then life things happened, like I got married, Gillian had a baby. Uh, there, we're just sort of um, doing it all. <laughs> yeah, but it was a fun way to sort of uh, dip our toes into television um, and storytelling and trying new ways to do it in different formats, different lengths. But we really, you know, we had this idea for Landline before we had the TV idea, and we really were ready to go. Um, And, you know, we found uh, financiers who were also ready. So uh, it just made – I'm I'm glad that this is how it unfolded, that this is what we did. Even though nobody watches movies anymore and they love television and, you know – that's a different podcast or a different conversation. It's an interesting conversation that we have a lot here. So, yes, we'll we'll keep that one going. But in the meantime, you know, regardless of whether people see that pilot or your next one or whatever, the point is you have an ongoing collaboration that seems to work. So, first of all, what are the mechanics of that collaboration? Like, how do you work together? Not in the same room. We cannot write <laughs> in the same room. Wow. Well, no. I mean, I get severe ADD. I can't, I can't write in a coffee shop. I'll just listen to other people's conversations um, and we'll get no work done. I can barely write with the internet on. Um, but no, we what we do is we go off in our own spaces and we get to be free and take our time and go at our own pace. And then we come together and we read uh, our scenes out loud. And every scene has been touched by one of us and reworked and talked about to to great lengths. Um, I like writing in bed and Liz likes writing in her uh, red room. <laughs> you make Your it dining room. so scary. Yeah, my Your dining room table. No. Um, no, you write on couches too. You don't just write like sitting up, right? You make it sound so <laughs> fancy. I write in my red room and on couches. I'm just saying I write in bed like a real sloth. No, I can't. <laughs> I can't do anything in bed. I, no, forget that. Uh, that also came out weird and wrong. <laughs> Maybe we should start over. Uh, yeah, we we you know we meet up to talk about story and characters and where we want to see a story go, what we want to happen, uh, funny shit that happened to us in real life, uh, scary, awful shit that happened to us in real life. Mix all these things together and then kind of divide and conquer. And uh, like Gillian said, come back together and and trade pages and trade notes and. I mean, we get to a certain place where we're reading dialogue aloud to each other and tweaking jokes and things in the same room, but it does start in sort of 
uh, separate caves. <laughs> it's interesting you said that about you're kind of like pulling from real life experiences because one thing I noticed in your films, the, these films that we're talking about, is that there is an overarching story. It's not like a meandering meditation type movie. They're not they're not these meditative movies, but they're kind of punctuated with these like real life little moments that give it texture. Like everything feels so kind of like either funny or sad, authentic, real. Like I'm thinking of um, in Landline, this scene uh, in the shower where uh, a boyfriend pees on the girlfriend and somehow it's still adorable. Like, (laughs) should I cut that out? No, no. it didn't feel like it was a plot, you know, a key plot moment. (laughs) But that's my point. It's like, depends on who you ask. Fair enough. But it's like these little, little life moments that feel so like that lived in lived in so how do you like are those all written ahead of time or are you asking us if we peed on each other no (laughs) um yes uh, this is all written I don't I don't think you need to really inform a lot of people that you have a scene where somebody pees on another character there's a lot of department heads who need to weigh in on that <laughs> to get the pee consistency the right color and um, actors need to know that no imagine that was a large percentage of the budget yeah was to that pee yellow yeah. <laughs> and so yes that was that was written and, um, <laughs> and got to stay in the film um which i'm very happy to say um yeah i think this movie was primarily all written. Um, um, there was not a lot of improv. However, Liz and I aren't sort of precious writers where if somebody doesn't use punctuation correctly or if they change a piece of dialogue around um, to make it sound more realistic, um, that's totally fine and open. And I, I sort of encourage that sort of um, adding that real humanity to to the words that you know we've said over and over in our heads and out loud to each other but it's so nice that's why we're turning it into a film and not making it a book or it's not a journal entry this is this is a collaboration and picking you know the right talented actors is key to that collaboration um and i and i think when you open it up to other people's perspectives that's when it just grows and becomes even better um and stronger so, but that being said, this movie doesn't have as much improv as, for example, Obvious Child. A lot of the stand-up was written, but neither of us are stand-up comedians uh, and never fancied ourselves that. But, you know, Jenny had points to get to. Um, some of the jokes we wrote are in the movie. Some of them are, you know, she came up with on the cuff. And it was really important for that performance to to give her the space to do that, especially since she is a stand-up and kn- knows that world and being on stage more than we do. Um, so it was my job to set up cameras in the best way and let her hit, you know, find the moments herself and then to really edit the fuck out of it. <laughs> uh, you can edit that too. Um, yeah, I think in terms of trying to tell stories that feel hopefully authentic we we're both as writers and filmmakers drawn to um things that hopefully feel relatable that feel um like something you can connect to and that make you feel 
maybe a little less alone, maybe like you're going to be okay. I mean, those are the movies that I love and watch again and again, and that's what we strive to do in our work. And I think it's hard to do that if it's not a somewhat lived-in experience for you, or that's where we start anyway. Um, And I think Jenny as a performer, you know, part of why she's so goddamn funny is because she's very concerned with truth. She's very concerned with real human experience and everyone always says you know comedy comes from pain among many other places um for her i think it just comes from being a fully fleshed out human animal um and enjoying the comedy of humanity um and i think that's sort of where we where we live too especially uh being in the uh, shower <laughs> is there anything more human than being in the shower i ask you <laughs> Does anyone point. not pee in the shower? Robots. We will send it out answer. as a poll question to Thank our you. listeners and let you know. In the meantime, so then I guess, Gillian, given that a lot of this is written or everything basically is written, what do you do on set to encourage that authenticity from your actors? I just put my, she tickles my headphones them. Yeah. on and on autopilot. No. Um, Pees on them. No, I love working with actors, and I think there's so many stages um, – that you do it in, you know, I think it's with uh, rehearsing. Obviously, on a independent film, you don't get a ton of time, as much time as I would like, but sitting around and having conversations, reading the script um, out loud at a table read, but then pairing off and working with different, you know, with this movie, it was great because everyone, we could pair off. We could pair off Edie and John and have like a little mini rehearsal with them. We definitely paired off Jenny and Abby. Abby Quinn plays Allie. Jenny's a younger sister. Um, And, uh, you know, then working with the costumes and hair and makeup. So there's all these little stages that occur before you actually yell action the first day. But often, because of the lack of rehearsal time, the establishing shot tends to be a little bit of a rehearsal for everyone. Um, obviously, on day twenty, you know we're we're really living in our roles um, and parts, and the actors really know who these characters are. But um, they also come to the table with a lot of their own thoughts. You know, Edie is this amazing Edie Falco who plays Pat in the movie. Has been doing this for so long. Has been in so many of my favorite movies and television shows. Um, and she has this, like, I, I've said this before, but this bullshit detector where she's able to sort of find the truth in each scene and the pieces of that truth and, and weave them together where it's like all of the excess junk is just gone. And that can be done with removing a word or that could be done with the way she looks. It's so subtle. And, you know, sometimes you you miss it, but then when, again, we're sitting in the edit and it's just like blows me away. Her performance blew me away. Um, and John Turturro is a dream come true to work with. He's comedic, shall I say, genius. <laughs> um, but also has like a vulnerability that I think came through in this character for sure. And then later I watched Night Of and was um, pretty surprised and blown away with how great he was in that character as well. But um yeah, he he's this New York icon and um, a lovely and talented actor. And to put Edie and John together, they've never worked together. Mm. Uh, they came up in New York around the same time, but they've never been in a film together. Edie's really good friends with John's cousin, who is on The Sopranos. Um, so they had a you know 
familial relationship previously to to this movie, which I think came through in their performance. Yeah, and I think everyone was vulnerable. Everyone was vulnerable in a really special way in this movie, it seemed. Thank you. I think Gillian, as a director, um, has a really lovely way about her that is open and that enjoys you know so we're sitting at monitor and I'm and you're enjoying watching um I mean you're also directing you're not just in there with popcorn and raisinets but I think Although there I am is, eating a lot yeah oh yeah sure <laughs> um but I think there is um something really lovely about the way that Gillian encourages actors to just try things and explore and I've seen, you know, we go in with an idea for how we might like a scene to play or how we might think a moment is going to go, um, but been surprised by an actor trying something slightly different or new. Um, that's fucking awesome. And I think Gillian, you know, is really quite verbal in a great way about encouraging, you know, more of that um, and making actors feel comfortable and excited to play and to try. Um, and I think that that's a big part of how we, you know, get to that kind of authenticity is because there's so much trust there because of the way she is. Thanks, Liz. Hey, you're welcome. So this film had a, a specific kind of 90s look, obviously, and you talked about your what? production designer. <laughs> um, were there any other kinds of decisions you made about how it would be shot or lit or anything visual to bring us back to that era which, yeah. by the way, it makes yeah. me feel old to talk about that era as something <laughs> way, way back. We're all old and we're all dying. Um, yeah, we <laughs> talked early on with Chris Let's Teague, with that. our cinematographer, yeah. who is also a product of the 90s. Um, you know, and his first question was like, do you want this to look like a 90s movie? And immediate response was no. <laughs> um, definitely grew up on 90s movies. Um the independent film scene in the 90s, I think, in in the United States was really cool and interesting. You know, Hal Hartley was definitely somebody. I watched a lot of his movies in Angelica. Um, and yet there was also this very bright comedy that we wanted to stay away from. The 90s had like a very plastic look. A lot of the movies looked very bright and very plastic. And also, what New York looked like in the 90s um, felt more like a 70s movie. It mm-hmm. felt a little bit more like Kramer versus Kramer, which is early 80s, I guess. Um, Hannah and her sisters, again, early 80s. But, like, you know, our apartments were very lived in. Um, they never felt like the 90s. It felt like the generation before us. Um, and so we decided early on to just have the aesthetics of those early 70s, 80s movies rather than the 90s movie. And um, fortunately, we could not afford to shoot on film. So we used this really cool process technique afterwards called live grain. Um, And uh, basically, for all you film nerds out there, um, Da Vinci, which is the color correcting system that you all know and use to color correct your films, has a grain element and you can put it on, you slap it on your films and that's sort of really cool. We did that with Obvious Child and we were blown away by it. It gives a texture that looks like film um, because we're shooting our movies on, you know, computers, <laughs> um, which also are very clear images. So um, 
you know, the Da Vinci grain is really nice and it really worked well on Obvious Child, but we wanted, we tried something called live grain and it just blew us away because it didn't look like grain. It looked like it was embedded into the image where um, before it kind of looks like it's dancing and it can be a little distracting. I'll just trim this down and just say, you know, it's really a wonderful technique to to apply if you can't uh, afford shooting on film. And, and we wanted to sort of have a moody, textured look where if somebody stepped into a shadow, let that shadow be on their face and let it be a little moody. You know, this isn't, um, I call it a drama that you're going to laugh a lot in. So we didn't want to shoot it like a very bright, broad comedy. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and I think you're right. You know, it, it used to be, Maybe we were a little snobbish about like, well, I'm going to apply a grain filter and suddenly it will look like film and you kind of rolled your eyes like even five years ago. And now I think it's a real. And people still do roll their eyes. But, um, you know, we wanted uh, to give it a sort of timeless moodiness, but we weren't able to afford film. And so you just work with what you can can get. (laughs) But it was definitely hard, you know, shooting in New York now because the 2017 New York looks nothing like 1995. So we had slivers of the city that we were usable, but luckily families really hang out inside and they don't really hang out on the street together. So uh, we were able to production design their apartment. And, you know, I think our favorite room was definitely uh, the childhood bedroom that Allie and Dana share, where there's sort of a Felix and Oscar vibe going on, where Dana's side, that's Jenny's character, is very neat and tidy and has like, like baller- a Dega poster. Yeah, Dega <laughs> with the ballerinas, and she had moved out, but Allie had taken over, and her side had, you know, the best Rolling Stone covers on, on her wall. Liz was not allowed to have that in growing up. Her mom wouldn't let her. So she was able to do that through this this character and you know Liz Fair, Courtney Love, Winona Ryder covers and some good Beastie Boys, Yolo Tango posters and oh we found um, Flyers, the person who um, used to throw raves in New York City downtown uh, is still alive and well and um, uh, our production designer Kelly found him and he donated some flyers and we recreated them and put them on Allie's wall, we put them on her boyfriend's wall who's this you know kind of skater kid who was allowed to tag up his his wall which I definitely knew boys like that but um yeah it was it was just a fun movie to production design um and and go back into those you know jeans those high-waisted jeans which now everyone wears but um we didn't want it to be a caricature of the 90s something Liz and I and everyone all of our department heads we always said like if this element was taken out of the film. We still wanted the story to be strong on its own. Let's not, you know, slap bracelet up the whole joint um, and make it a silly caricature, you know, silly part of the movie. We wanted to make it realistic as not, possible. Not the extra, extra wide leg jinkos. Yeah, I no. was all about those. We had some wide leg pants <laughs> in the rave scene, but you can't really see them. Yeah, I've stolen most of the rave clothes from <laughs> from wardrobe and I cannot fit into them. No, neither can I, but I have it. <laughs> no, it's back. It's back. You I, ride just, the L I, train. Just hold, I just hold them at night. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> crazy oots, to me. Oots. Like Doc Martens are back, the whole thing's back. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So we always end the show with advice. And I have two 
two advice questions for you guys. So first one is, you talked a lot about your collaboration, about finding each other and also finding other people to add to your circle or cycle through. So how does someone find their best collaborators? (laughs) (laughs) J-date. In our case, we met um, at like a film mixer at IFP. So I think you often find collaborators where there's like free alcohol and uh, and desperation. Um, But... uh, yeah, like and J date, and yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, alcohol is not always free on J dates mm-hmm. here. Um, I don't know. I I think uh, being open to the idea that anyone could be your collaborator. I mean, we met at a film mixer, but we're not actually there to find collaborators on our projects. Um, but we found friends in each other, and uh, just enjoyed talking to each other. And we're not pitching each other projects. And I think in general, filmmakers like just pitch way too much (laughs) and if you can like stop talking about your work and just start talking to a human um and listen uh and I think that's where collaboration comes because you're open and you're not trying to like sell someone something you're just seeing the ways that you connect um be yourself right that that's uh that's true don't be an asshole. So true. Um, yeah, I'll try and think of more. Well, so, I mean, we really sort of good. pointed to something without actually saying it that you met at this IFP event. So one of the pieces of advice is, like, go to these things. Like, go to filmmaker mixers. Go to festivals. We're saying that all the time here. Yeah, for sure. I think I, for many years, was afraid of those things. And this one I went to because it was, A, near my house, and... Uh, I was feeling extra brave that night, and I downed a couple of wines before I stumbled (laughs) into Liz. Um, And, you know, even if Liz and I hadn't met that night, I'm still glad that I pushed myself to to go out and do that. You know, it's, it's, they're uncomfortable, and they often feel like speed dating and um, blind dates and all the worst parts of dating. But sometimes you you find somebody who you connect with and then you marry them and then you get divorced. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and, and landline in yeah. theaters. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's more like, you know, like polyamory. You have multiple relationships going on. right? For sure. So, and I think what's good about our movie is that what we're trying to not what's good about it, but what we say often in our movie that it's a family that is taking on new shape and there'll always be a family. Um, so, you know, hopefully we're in this business for a long time and we find projects together that we can work on and, and as individuals grow. Um, so it's, it's all love. Oh, I'm getting choked up. <laughs> Speaking of which, I cried like a baby at your movie. You're welcome. Aww. Aww. No, I don't know if I was supposed to. We love making really people did. cry. <laughs> I cried today twice. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I didn't do it. I didn't expect you to be so dark. We've got we're all dying. We've got you've cried today twice. <laughs> this is interesting. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, but you're talking to people who love to tell love stories about abortion and divorce. I'm surprised. That, I'm surprised that you're surprised. <laughs> That's right. Fair enough. That's an important note. Um, <laughs> Anyhow, so looping all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, 
the last piece of advice I want to ask you about is is making that leap. So if someone's listening to this and they're saying, okay, I've also got my first feature in the can. Maybe it also was at Sundance. You know, now I'm sort of at that anxiety point of like, I don't know if I could do it again. I don't know if I have the money again. I don't, I don't know if I have the energy again. You know, what would you say to them? What's your advice? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, that is a very difficult question. I don't feel confident at this moment to answer it, um, but sort of what I've been doing since the day I was born, and it's just you continue to to push through all of the challenges. Um, I just remember, like, in first grade being diagnosed with dyslexia and put in all the slow reading groups and told that I would never really, you know, be able to read and comprehend a book by an adult. And I was like, fuck you. I'm going to read. I want to read Hobbit. And then I read The Hobbit. I was like, I don't want to read The Hobbit. (laughs) This book sucks. Sorry for all the token fans out there. Um, But, uh, yeah, so I just, you know, you just push through and you overcome. And sometimes those voices, those negative voices are fuel. And that's really exciting when it, it helps burn that fire in your belly um, and sometimes they defeat you and you have to live in that too and um, but try to figure out a way to, to get out of those dark times and, and moments when you don't feel like you can do another movie or another notes call um, because you can. Gillian and I are both workaholics um, and uh, although I think in motherhood your your work-life balance has come to a, a lovely place that I can only fantasize about or having it someday. Um, but I think we both like to keep our heads down uh, and just do the work. And, um, you know, Obvious Child premiered at Sundance. We both still had our day jobs and kept our day jobs until we uh, sold the idea for Landline and were 100% certain that we could afford to take time to do be full-time filmmakers and I hope we continue to be but you know I'm also realistic about the fact that like I may go back to having a day job for various periods of my life and that we're really just getting started um so I think it was about keeping your heads down and doing the work it was about being okay with saying no to things um there's a lot of pressure to like attach yourself to a thing with this actor or that producer or this network and um, none of it maybe is something that you deeply connect with, but you feel like you're supposed to know what your next project is. And part of figuring that out is like taking the time to pass on stuff and wait for the right thing. Um, so I think saying no is cool. Oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, what else? I don't know. I I was I was listening. It was to... a long process. Like nothing happened overnight. Things took time. Yeah, I think you have to be really patient because it is a marathon. And um, I was listening to Sheila Nevins give a talk recently. um, And she was saying how like every movie is your first movie because that's the first time you're making it. And uh, I was like, oh, shit, Sheila. So Mm -hmm. true. Uh, Every movie I know nothing. And I'm, you know, figuring it out as I go. And there were so many new things that we learned on this project. So not taking for granted the fact that you're still you're growing. still growing and and learning, um, yeah, and try to quit smoking if you can at some point. That, that's, <laughs> now I'm just talking to myself. Yeah, no. I don't know who you're addressing this from. <laughs> I do not smoke. Uh huh. 
You know, I think that's those are those are all wise words, including the quitting smoking. <laughs> so I think we'll uh, we'll leave it at that. Thank you both so much. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. Thanks so much. I like your necklace a lot. Thank you for listening. As mentioned, Landline is in theaters now, and you can look out for it on streaming later this year. You can hear lots of other fascinating conversations on the art of filmmaking by finding the No Film School podcast in iTunes, and of course by visiting us at nofilmschool.com. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you can catch our Indie Film Weekly News Show, which comes out every Thursday morning and fills you in on everything you might have missed when you were busy making films. You can reach me on Twitter at LizFilm, and we are on Twitter at NoFilmSchool. See you on Thursday.